Please turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians and chapter 6. We'll read this morning from verses 10 through 20, though the message will come from the first three verses, 10, 11, and 12. Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll begin reading in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. You stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that the word may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, and for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, in these moments now, we give to you our hearts, our lives, our minds, we subject them before you, and we ask that through your word, you would do that work of transforming and shaping, shaping and fashioning uh, our hearts, our lives, our minds. We pray that you would assist us in the opening up of your word, that you would enable us to apply it in all the ways it ought to be applied that you would by your spirit impress upon us the sobering realities of this text and that you would through this passage give us a greater awareness and sense of the power of Satan and sin and a greater trust in the power of Christ to strengthen his people for the fight in our spiritual warfare. We pray in Christ's name, amen. We have said in a number of messages that the essential message of Ephesians, which is presented to us in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, uh, that that essential message is more or less as follows, that God has begun and is perfecting a cosmic work of reconciliation in Christ Jesus. God has begun and he is perfecting a cosmic work of reconciliation in Christ Jesus. Another way we could say that is uh, God has begun a work in Christ of making all things new. And we've said that this work comprehends five essential elements, five things in the book of Ephesians as the text unfolds. First of all, this great and cosmic work of reconciliation that God has begun in Christ encompasses the redemptive plan of God in eternity past. That's revealed to us in Ephesians chapter 1, this great work that God has begun that began before the foundations of the world, uh, adopting us as sons and daughters and making us part of his elect people. Then the second aspect of this redemptive work is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This work encompasses the salvation of individuals in time who have been brought from death to life and have been saved by the grace of God. 
I imagine many of us know that passage, Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. God has in time saved individual people, reconciled them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Then thirdly, we've seen that this work of reconciliation comprehends the formation of a new community in Christ Jesus, namely the church. God's chosen people made up of Jew and Gentile reconciled to one another in one united body. God has made a new people in Christ Jesus, reconciling them first to himself and then to one another. Disparate peoples who formerly were hostile toward one another, alienated from one another, have now been made one through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's revealed to us in chapter 2, verse 11, really on through to the middle of chapter 4. Then the, the fourth aspect of this redemptive purpose, this work of reconciliation in Christ, it comprehends the establishment of a new moral order, a new way of life, Christian ethics, a, a law by which we as God's people are to live. And these standards, these, uh, this new walk, this new way of life, it begins in chapter 4, verse 1, therefore walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, but really comes to its clearest expression in the middle of chapter 4, verse 17, put off the old self. Verse 24, put on the new self, and then we're given instructions about anger and about stealing and about how to use our speech and those such things and instructions about family and marriage and parenting. And then fifthly and finally, in the book of Ephesians, the fifth aspect of this great work God is doing in Christ of reconciliation, it comprehends the drafting of believers into cosmic spiritual warfare in which believers wage war alongside Christ against satanic powers and evil forces in the spiritual realm. And we begin today to talk about the final piece of this redemptive work of reconciliation that God is doing, namely the drafting of believers into spiritual warfare to fight alongside one another and alongside Christ. I'll just tell you that one of my greatest anxieties for my heart and life, and one of my greatest anxieties for the hearts and lives of the people for whom it's my privilege to pastor, is that we don't give enough attention to the subject of spiritual warfare. We don't think enough about the conflict that takes place in the spiritual realm. We don't routinely, daily, hour by hour, think of ourselves as being engaged in a cosmic struggle against evil, satanic forces whose singular aim is the ruin of our souls. And perhaps we're too modern for that or too scientific for that or all too enlightened and too rational for that. The Christian church today is entirely too casual and careless and carefree. We don't see bombs lighting up the sky. We don't hear bullets whizzing past our ears. And we've been lulled into thinking everything is all right. So often think according to this natural realm and perhaps rarely give consideration to the war that wages in the spiritual realm. In the next 40 minutes, I want to do everything I can to persuade you that you, Christian, are at war. And you are situated in the midst of a cosmic conflict of everlasting implications. And I want to convince you that Satan is the enemy of your soul. And he walks around like a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. I want to persuade you that you must pray every day as the Lord himself instructed us to pray daily. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
I want to persuade you that you must run to Christ daily and there find strength to stand against the schemes of the devil. Christian, I want to rouse you and cause you to be alive to the sound of planes flying overhead and bombs exploding outside your doors. We are engaged Christians in the conflict of our lives. And we must live out our days with an ever-present awareness of the war in which we are engaged. And that is the aim of this sermon, to raise our awareness of the war that rages on in the spiritual realm, to raise our awareness of the spiritual warfare into which we have been called by the Lord Jesus Christ. But briefly, I'd like to say a word to you who are not believers, those who have not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You have to know this morning that you are among a community of God's people, a community of people who believe in God, who confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you are among a community of people that believe that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. We as God's people believe in angels. We believe in demons. We believe in heaven, and we believe in hell. And we believe that there exists a spiritual realm and that in that realm there is taking place even now cosmic warfare between the powers of darkness and the powers of light and we believe that our very souls are engaged in that conflict. And so I would not be surprised if this sermon, again if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I would not be surprised if this sermon is totally lost on you. I would not be surprised if you even thought we were silly for believing in these sorts of things, angels and demons and spiritual forces of evil that we war against in the spiritual realm. I should say, even though in believing in transcendent and spiritual realities, we are in the vast majority of people throughout human history, we are in the vast majority of people who live today, and religious convictions are growing now more than at any time in the modern era throughout the world. But all of that aside, I could understand, uh, given our culture, our social climate, how you might believe we're silly for believing such things. My prayer for you this morning is that God would reveal himself to you and that you would come to see that there is more to life than bare naturalism, more to life than our own pleasure. My prayer is that you would see that you, my friend, are not the end of all things, but that the world is governed by deeper and more spiritual and sobering realities. And ultimately, my prayer is that you will come to Jesus Christ and that you will see him and that you will come to embrace him as your savior. But now I want to open up the passage before us in Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 12. I'll do so this morning under three main headings. First of all, we want to see the strength needed. Secondly, the armor provided. And thirdly, the enemy identified. We'll see the strength needed, the armor provided, and thirdly, the enemy identified. And the next week, God willing, we'll actually consider, consider the spiritual armor of God in verses 13 through following. But first of all, please consider with me, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Let's see here the strength that's needed. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The verb translated in uh, the ESV, if you're using that translation and a number of other English translations, uh, is translated be strong. It appears as a present, uh, active command, an active imperative. You, Christians, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We miss a little something here in the English language. This is one of those rare situations where Greek is a little helpful. Uh, the verb itself is not an active command. It's actually a passive command. So the idea is not so much be strong as much as it is be strengthened. We're not so much the active agent uh, searching for the strength within. We are acted upon. We're passive 
doesn't mean we don't do things, but the strength is provided for us, given to us. This idea is contained in Ephesians chapter 3 in Paul's prayer, verse 16. He says this, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Presumably the idea in 3.16 and in our text in 6.10 is the idea that our strength does not come from within but from without. Our strength is not internal to us but external. It's given to us. So it's not like be strong as in just stir yourself up. Rally yourself to action and dig deep down within. and Be bold, be courageous, be strong. The, the, the idea is more like become strong through the strength that God himself supplies in Jesus Christ. Uh, we see this most clearly in the words that follow this command. Be strengthened in the Lord and in the power of his great might. Now what have we said in the past when you see those words in the Lord or in Christ? What is that a reference to? We've seen in Ephesians, it's a reference to our union with Christ. We as Christians have been united to the Lord Jesus. We are in the Lord. We're in Christ. And here that is the reference in chapter 6 and verse 10. Our strength apparently comes through our vital union and communion with the Lord Jesus. We draw our strength from him through our attachment, through our union with him. We who have been saved by God's grace and have been adopted as his sons and daughters have been united to the Lord Jesus. And therefore as those united to him, we can draw from his strength. We can draw from his resources. There's strength that's available to us now that was not available to us before, before we were made Christians, before we were united to the Lord Jesus. One of the commentators writes this, quote, the idea is that by virtue of our union with Christ, the power that is inherently his may be drawn upon by us. In him we can do all things. Apart from him, defeat is inevitable, end quote. All of our power has to come from Christ, in other words. And if we're outside of Christ, we're in every way vulnerable. We are in every way vulnerable to the attacks of Satan, to his fiery darts. But in him, there's strength and might to be found. And we can draw on those resources. So in chapter 6, verse 10, when Paul is sizing up the foes that array themselves against Christians and against the church, God's new people in Christ, he recognizes that they're going to need strength. As he takes inventory, takes stock of the, the armies that are arrayed against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, you're going to need strength. And that strength is not going to come just from digging deeper and looking within. That strength has to come through our vital union with the Lord Jesus. We must draw on his resources that he's made available, the mighty power that God has worked in the Lord Jesus Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's where our strength comes. It's his great might. So I'm united to him. And therefore, what he has is mine. I now have access to power and strength that I didn't have before. But now as a Christian, I have strength given me through my union with Christ. And it's that strength, that power with which we are to wage war. So that's the strength that's needed. We need strength that comes through our union with Christ. Now secondly, look with me at verse 11. We want to see the armor provided. The armor provided. Verse 11, very simply, Paul tells them to put on the whole armor of God. And all my comments this morning on the armor of God are just going to be very brief. Because next week, God willing, we're going to survey the, the armory that's given to us. We're going to take inventory of the equipment that the Lord has made available to his people. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, etc. But this morning, I simply want us to see the fact that there is armor provided us by God. 
and it's provided for the purpose of waging war. It's provided by God, and it's provided for a purpose, that we might fight, that we might stand against the schemes of the devil. Paul, once again in verse 11, uses that language, put on. We've seen that before. Ephesians 4, verse 24, put on the new self. Put on new character, the new man, the new nature. Now we're to put on the armor of God. And now we're not passive, okay? We're actually putting on, we're clothing ourselves, we're dressing ourselves in a suit of armor. We actually have to do something. But again, we must recognize that just as the strength is not our own, the armor is not our own either. It's not like we've equipped ourselves with our own resources. Again, the resources are coming from God. It's his armor, it belongs to him, and we equip ourselves with his resources. It is the armor of God. Our strength ultimately has to come from him, and if we have any hope of withstanding the enemy, we have to put on his armor such that we could fight against the attacks of Satan. Some of the commentators observe that perhaps um, there's a veiled reference here to uh, some of Isaiah's prophecy where in the number of passages, God, Yahweh, and his Messiah uh, are pictured as a mighty warrior in the field of battle. And there's references to the armor of God. He's put on his armor and he's gone to battle to wage war on behalf of his people. Well, I'm not exactly sure. That would be some speculation. Uh, but it's possible that Paul has that in mind. And if he does, what a beautiful picture. Uh, uh, God and the Messiah have been waging war and now we as those united to him are caught up in the conflict. And we fight alongside him. We wage war alongside God. And so again, Paul, when he sizes up the enemy, he tells Christians, you're going to need strength. And you're going to need armor. And these you will have through Christ. And you will be given the strength of Christ and the armor of God. And it is only with this strength and this armor that you can withstand the attacks of Satan and his forces. Well, one very simple thing I want us to see before we move on to the third point and discuss the the enemy that's identified in this text is that outside of Christ, without his strength, without the armor that God himself supplies, we are utterly vulnerable. If you think you have the resources within yourself to withstand the attacks of Satan, to overcome your sin, to stand against his deception and his schemes and his designs outside of Christ and without the armor that he himself has given to his people, you will surely fall and you will surely fail. Safety is only found in Christ and we can only wage warfare with the armor that he provides us. But now thirdly, we want to see the enemy identified. The enemy identified. Who is our enemy? Look with me at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now Paul goes out of his way in verse 12 to clarify that our conflict is not against flesh and blood. When he's identifying our enemy, he wants to make a, it's not against flesh and blood. Don't make that mistake which I understand to mean that our conflict is not against our fellow men and women. It's not against other human beings on this earth. Our principal enemy is not earthly nations and governments and rulers. Our warfare is not waged primarily in the political realm or even in the natural realm. Our warfare is waged on a cosmic and spiritual plane. 
Now, this is it's not the emphasis of the text, but I think it's an important point. We need to understand this. Maybe if we understood that our conflict is not waged against flesh and blood, we might learn to chill out every election cycle when it rolls around. Our war is not ultimately waged on Capitol Hill. It's waged in the realm against forces that are far more sinister, an adversary that is far more powerful. We're not at war with our fellow men and women. I'm not disparaging political involvement. I'm not disparaging even political activism. But if you view your war primarily as being with the culture, we talk about the culture wars, or your war is against the opposing political party, or your war is against that group of people who think that way, you've got it wrong. Paul wants to tell us our, our, our battle, our fight, is not against flesh and blood. It's not fought on Capitol Hill. It's not fought at, at, at the town hall meeting. It's not fought against your neighbor. We don't war against physical, natural, uh, uh, flesh and blood forces. Our adversary is far greater, far more sinister, and our war is waged in the spiritual realm. So if our struggle is not against flesh and blood, who is it against? Well, read on again with me, verse 11, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So our war is against, verse 12, I and mean, the devil's mentioned in verse 11, but verse 12, we're told we war against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places. Now, I personally do not believe that Paul is referring to four different groups here, or some sort of hierarchy of, of forces that are arrayed against the Christian. I think he's describing the same basic enemy. We as Christians are at war against spiritual forces of evil and Satan himself. Our warfare is against Satan and his minions. Our war is against demonic powers. Our spiritual, excuse me, our war is against spiritual forces of darkness not visible to the eye. Their effects are visible, but our enemy is not visible to us. We don't see Satan with the physical eye. We see the effects, but our enemy wages war in the spiritual realm. Listen, friends, don't shy away from this truth. Our struggle is against personal, demonic intelligences it's against individuals who are cognizant and conscious of the war in which we are engaged and they are arrayed against our souls and their one goal is to extinguish our faith and to ruin the church of Jesus Christ do you believe this do you believe that Satan is the enemy of your soul that there are demonic forces that seek to undermine your faith that we are engaged in a conflict against the spiritual forces of darkness, the spiritual forces of evil. Listen, if I could peel back for a second uh, the curtain separating this natural realm from the spiritual realm, and if you could see the murderous and demonic hordes that are arrayed against your soul, that are arrayed against Emmanuel Church, that are arrayed against the church of Jesus Christ in every place, it would freeze your heart, and it would bring you to your knees crying out to God for cover and for strength and for help. I'm convinced that most Christians, I'm convinced that I myself really have no idea what we're up against. Our enemy is greater than us and our enemy is after us. So much greater than any adversary or enemy we could imagine in this life. We hear these scriptures all the time, right, about Satan, about demons. We read one of them this morning 
Uh, in Matthew chapter 8, he cast out the demons and went to the pigs, and the pigs ran into the water. And sometimes that just goes in one ear, right out the other. Well, that becomes a pleasant Sunday school story for children, but we don't really give a lot of thought to it. I want to read a few texts about Satan and about the forces of darkness, and I want you to pray in your heart that the Lord Jesus would impress upon us afresh the sobering realities of the enemy we're up against. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. The devil, unseen to you, is prowling around like a roaring lion. What does that mean, prowling around? Is he prowling around now, in this sanctuary? Does he prowl around downtown and uptown and in the suburbs? Satan's prowling around like a roaring lion, and he's not just hanging out. He's seeking someone to devour. Is that you? Is that me? Is that every Christian? He's seeking someone to devour. John 8, verse 44. Satan was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He was a liar and the father of lies. We've seen in Ephesians 4, verses 26, 27, about anger, be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your wrath, and do not give an opportunity for the devil. The idea is that when you feel anger in your heart, and you're tempted to act in an angry way, a hateful way, Satan's close by, and he's seeking to use you like a puppet, and to manipulate you, and to take that anger, and to nurture it, and to fan it into flame, such that he might ruin your faith, and ruin your testimony. Do we take seriously the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 when he gave us the Lord's prayer? Verse 13, he said, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Do you feel the sense for daily deliverance from Satan? Daily deliverance from his fiery darts. Daily protection from the attacks of spiritual forces of darkness. How about more personal attacks where Satan is seen to attack individuals Specifically, you might think of Job. Job is very comprehensive in that uh, we get a window into this conference that takes place between the devil and between God himself. And what does Satan do? He asks for Job. And he says, this, this man will curse you. This man will abandon your cause. Just give me access to him, and I'll make shipwreck of his faith. And he has given some degree of access. What, is, what does Satan do? You know, Satan is an actual murderer. That's not just spiritualized in the Bible. Satan's actually murdering people. He's going to murder people today. He murdered Job's whole family. Why do you think there are so many suicides in the world? Do you think Satan has access to people? He did to Job's family, apparently. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. He prowls like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I think of Genesis 4. Cain contemplating murder in his heart. God says to him, sin is crouching at the door. It's personified, like sin is a person. Its desire is to have you. Sin's at the door. He's knocking. Can you hear the knock? His desire is to have you. I think of those horrifying words. It's, words are horrifying, followed by encouraging words, but in Luke 22, verse 31, Peter's there with the Lord, the night in which he's going to be betrayed. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you. Language is a little stronger than that. He's demanded you that he might sift you like wheat. 
Now, do you have any reason to believe that Satan doesn't have similar designs on your soul? Is there any biblical reason to believe that Satan doesn't do the same thing to God's people today? Alex, Alex, Satan has asked for you. He's demanded for you that he might sift you as wheat. Has Satan ever had those designs on your soul, on your heart? I suspect he has. I cite these texts simply to establish the point that our enemy is in the spiritual realm and he really is our enemy and he really does attack us and his desire really is the ruin of your soul. Our enemy is Satan and his demonic and spiritual forces. Well, what's to be our posture toward this enemy? Satan and his minions. Well, we're told that we're to wrestle. We're to struggle. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against rulers, authorities, etc. The word here translated wrestle, it's actually found nowhere else in the Bible. But in, the idea of an intense struggle. Not, not, not just a, a back and forth, but an intense struggle. P.T. O'Brien says this, quote, in this close struggle, hand-to-hand combat is in view. Not the firing of computer-guided missiles from a distance. No, it's struggle, it's hand-to-hand combat. It's engaging in a struggle with Satan. Needless to say, no Christian can evade the intense struggle against the enemy. No Christian is exempt from this fight against this conflict. We are, each one of us, engaged in spiritual warfare. Now, when it comes to to warfare in general, the natural realm and the spiritual realm, it's a basic principle that failure to properly estimate the capability of your enemy can be deadly. So we can't make that mistake in our warfare as believers So brothers and sisters, here are a few things I think we're meant to know about Satan from this passage and against our enemy, the devil and his forces. I want you to see, first of all, that our enemy is powerful. Secondly, that he's wicked. And thirdly, our enemy is cunning. Powerful, wicked, cunning. First, our enemy is powerful. Uh, They are described as rulers, authorities, cosmic powers. It's unclear if These titles represent some sort of a hierarchy, but I think the main thing Paul wants to draw our attention to is that they are powerful. They have some sort of authority. They're principalities, they're cosmic powers over this present darkness, and they apparently are more powerful than us. Now why do I say that? Because we need the strength of God. We need the armor of God, or else we have no chance. How are you going to win in the battle against Satan and his forces? You're going to need strength, not your own, armor, not your own. Listen, Satan, my friend, is stronger than you. His forces, those arrayed against your soul, they're stronger than you. Where are you going to find your strength? Where are you going to run? How will you find protection? It must be found in Jesus Christ and the armor of God. So our enemy is powerful. Secondly, our enemy is wicked. Of course, power itself can be neutral, not necessarily inherently wrong, but these forces wield their power for evil, for destruction, for ruin. John Stott, commenting on this text, says this, quote, is God's plan to create a new society? Then they will do their utmost to destroy it. Has God, through Jesus Christ, broken down walls, dividing human beings of different races and cultures from each other? Then the devil, through his emissaries, will strive to rebuild them. Does God intend to reconciled and redeemed people to live together in harmony and purity? Then the powers of hell will scatter among them the seeds of discord and sin. It is with these powers that we are told to wage war, or to be more precise, to wrestle. And he goes on to say, if we hope to overcome them, we shall need to bear in mind that they have no moral principles. 
They have no code of honor, no higher feelings. They recognize no Geneva Convention to restrict or partially civilize the weapons of their warfare. They are utterly unscrupulous and ruthless in the pursuit of their malicious designs. Christian, you must recognize that nothing is below Satan. Nothing is below Satan. He will do whatever it takes to shipwreck your faith and to ruin your soul. Our enemy is profoundly wicked. But thirdly, our enemy is cunning. Our enemy is cunning. He's crafty. In verse 11, Paul refers to the wiles of the devil. Someone is said to be wily. We use that language a lot, but he's cunning. He's crafty. His schemes and designs. We're to stand against the wiles of the devil. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says we are not to be outwitted by Satan or to be ignorant of his schemes. The devil is consistently revealed to us in the scriptures as one who is crafty, one who is cunning. He's often identified with a serpent who was the most cunning of all the beasts of the field. One who understands the art of subtlety and subterfuge and he's especially good at lying. He's good at deception. Again, Stott says this, quote, he, Satan, is a dangerous wolf but enters Christ's flock in disguise as a sheep. Sometimes he roars like a lion, but more often is as subtle as a serpent. We must not imagine, therefore, that open persecution and open temptation to sin are his only or even his commonest weapons. He prefers to seduce us into compromise and deceive us into error. I think one of the ways that Satan's cunning is most manifest, his craftiness, his wiliness is manifest, is in his tremendous ability to convince the world that he does not exist. His tremendous ability to lower the defenses of even the church. Do we really live in spiritual warfare? Do we have to pray every day, deliver us from the evil one? I don't, I don't see demons in this world. I was just getting a latte, just dropping the kids off at soccer practice. We don't see the war that's waging and Satan suddenly convinces us, yeah, I, there's nothing to be alarmed about. We don't see Satan and his forces. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, quote, I am certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. All is attributed to us. We have all become so psychological in our attitude and thinking. We are ignorant of this great objective fact, the being, the existence of the devil, the adversary, the accuser, and his fiery darts. Now perhaps, Dr. Lloyd-Jones said this in the middle of the 20th century, perhaps he was responding to the thinking of liberal theologians like this man named Rudolf Bultmann, liberal theologian of the 20th century. In writing in the 1940s, he said this, we cannot use electric lights and radios and in the event of illness avail ourselves of modern medical and clinical means and at the same time believe in the spirit and wonder world of the New Testament. We got electricity. We today have high-speed internet. We have smart, we can't believe really in the spirit and wonder world of Christianity. Listen, that wasn't a lost, per well, he was a lost person, but that wasn't someone who didn't profess Christ saying that. That was a liberal theologian. That was someone writing for pastors and seeking to educate them. We're far too educated, far too scientific, far too modern to believe in these ghost stories of Satan and his evil forces. I wonder, is that your position? Is that your heart? In C.S. Lewis's classic work, The Screwtape Letters, he pictures a master demon named Screwtape 
writing letters to a junior demon named Wormwood. I think it's a book that every senior in high school should read. And Screwtape is advising young Wormwood on methods and strategies for undermining the faith of Christians. And in the book, Screwtape tells Wormwood that if he could convince his subject, this individual that Wormwood is dating, his, his client, if he could convince him that Satan and demons don't really exist, he will have won a great victory. And in a line that haunted me when I first read it about 15 years ago, I can remember exactly where I was when I read this. It still haunts me today. This is advice from Screwtape to the junior demon Wormwood. He says, quote, It is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. You let that sink in. Our best work as evil demonic forces is not in putting things into people's minds. It's causing them to slip into that fatal ease letting down the defenses, taking things out of their minds, such as belief and the reality of demons and Satan himself. Friends, our enemy is oh so cunning, and he's trying to persuade you there's no warfare, there's no spirit realm. Don't buy that lie. You are even now waged in a conflict against Satan and his forces, and we should recognize that he will try to manipulate and to deceive and to bewitch each and every believer. So this is our enemy identified. It is Satan and his forces. And our enemy is powerful, and he is wicked, and he is cunning. Well, in closing, I want to share three lessons for us, three applications or implications from this text. And I'll move through these just very briefly, and then we'll close and sell the table. First of all, if all of our strength and all of our armor is to come from God, then we must be people who seek the help of God. We must recognize that we need resources that are not our own. We need strength that can't be found within ourselves. I need to be equipped with the armor of God himself. And you can see why Jesus tells us to pray daily for deliverance from the evil one. My friend, you must go to God in prayer daily. We should go into prayer weekly as a church asking for defense against the attacks of the evil one. My brother or sister, do you pray like you're at war? Do you pray like there are actual threats to your soul? Do you pray like there are demonic forces arrayed against your heart and against your faith and against your eternal safety? I love what John Piper says about prayer, that it's a wartime walkie-talkie for spiritual warfare, not a domestic intercom to increase the comforts of the saints. It's not like, God, I need another sandwich. It's God, protect me. Satan is desiring to have me, to sift me like wheat, and I need help, I need protection, I need strength that I can't find in here. I don't have up here. I need help, not my own. We must go to God and find help from Him. Secondly, if we as Christians are to understand ourselves as being engaged in spiritual warfare, let us put off distractions, have done with trifles, and live like we are at war. Let's put off distractions, have done with trifles, and let's live every day like we are at war. Let's not be oh so casual, careless, and carefree in our spiritual lives. Let's not allow ourselves to be so easily distracted by things of little or no eternal profit. Let us not slip into the fatal ease that disregards the sirens of our warfare. Christians, I encourage you to live your life with an ever-present awareness that you are at war 
and allow that awareness to shape your spiritual life. What do morning devotions look like in a context of spiritual warfare? Does the knowledge that you are at odds with, excuse me, at odds against spiritual forces of darkness breathe new life and urgency into your quiet time, into your daily intake of God's word? Do you wield your Bible in the morning as your sword against Satan and his attacks that day? If we are engaged in a war against the devil, how urgently do we need the scriptures? Young people, I want to press in on you right now. You need the Bible. You need the Bible. You need the Bible, and you need to wield it like a sword in warfare against your enemy. Satan's designs are against you, my young friend. Take up the Scriptures, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and read your Bible like you're at war and do it every day. What do our relationships in the church look like in a context of spiritual warfare? Do you see your brothers and sisters in the church as your brothers and sisters in arms? Do you view your fellow Christians as allies in the fight against the spiritual forces of darkness? You have no enemies in the church. You have no enemies of flesh and blood. You have allies in the fight against Satan. And we are called to wage war alongside one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. In a context of spiritual warfare, how badly do we need the church? How badly do we need one another? How do we think about our marriages in a context of spiritual warfare? How do we think about parenting in a context of spiritual warfare? How do we think about our money or our time in a context of spiritual warfare? How do we think about worship? Is the church a comfortable and casual gathering designed primarily for our entertainment? Or should we view our gatherings, this place, as an armory for the equipping of the saints? Are our songs to God pleasant ballads to delight the ear and entertain the senses? Or are they our battle cry in the bloody conflict against Satan and his demons? Are sermons to be seen as casual talks that we can take or leave? Or should they be seen as tactical instructions from headquarters? God equipping his people for their spiritual warfare. We Christians here in the West need to wake up. We must learn to adopt a wartime mentality and understand that there are some dark and sobering realities surrounding our lives from day to day. But thirdly and finally, and in closing, lest you be discouraged. Unless you take what I've said this morning, just crawl up in the fetal position in bed and never leave your house or open your door ever again. Lest you be discouraged. Thirdly, if we have been united to Christ, we must win. And we will win. If we have been united to Christ, we must win. I'm going to read again from Ephesians chapter 1 and the prayer that Paul gave there in chapter 1, verses 18 and following. I pray that you, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, that's the spiritual realm, far above, and here we have the same words, all rule, authority, and power, and dominion. Does that include Satan? You better believe it does. Does that include spiritual forces of darkness, principalities, and powers? You better believe it does. They've been placed, Christ has been placed far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Brothers and sisters, we have been united to Christ. We have been united to the one who has been raised from the dead and has been seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. And this one is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He's above every name that is named, including the name of Satan himself, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And to this one, all things have been put under his feet. And this one has power in himself, and he shares that power with his people so that they, alongside him, may have victory in the fight. This is not a time for fear. It's a time for confidence. Not naive triumphalism, like bring it on Satan. But if I'm in Christ, if I have his strength, if I'm clothed in his armor, we'll win. I'll have victory alongside him because these, though these powers are stronger than I am, though Satan is greater than I am, though I'm unequal to the fight in my own strength, I'm united to Christ. And he is assured final victory. If we are in Christ, we must win. This is part of God's great work of reconciliation that he's doing. He's like a, a warrior on the battlefield, waving his banner and rallying the troops to himself where they find new strength, new power to engage in the fight, to engage in the conflict. Brothers and sisters, don't be discouraged. Don't be afraid. Rather, run to Christ. Clothe yourself in the armor of God and engage alongside your Savior, the mighty warrior, the captain of your salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ against Satan and his forces. Do we begin to understand the words of Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress? Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. We saw that little word in Matthew 8. What did Jesus say to the demons? Go. One little word shall fell him. Take heart, brothers and sisters, for the fight. Draw on the strength of Christ and be clothed in his armor. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we prob probably have not begun to contemplate a right the great forces of evil that are gathered against your people, the church. Uh, we don't see Satan. We don't see demons. We so often act as though they have no designs on our hearts, on our lives, and yet you've told us in your word. We pray you would call these truths to our minds throughout the day, throughout the weeks, throughout the routine of life, that you would teach us you would make us aware of the spiritual conflict in which each one of us is engaged, in which we, as your church, is engaged. Father, we pray that you would equip us through Christ with strength for the fight. We pray that you would clothe us in your armor. Thank you for your provision of armor. 
And we pray that you would help us in the days ahead to clothe ourselves in this armor and to withstand the attacks of Satan. We thank you, Lord, that you go before us in the fight, that you are our captain, that you are our king, that the Lord is a mighty warrior, a great warrior who fights on behalf of his people. And how happy we are that final victory is secure. But in the meantime, help us to fight. Help us to stand. Protect your people. Protect your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.